This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Building drama system pitches. Lilith. Haunting movies. And Richard Nixon G-Man. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-p08. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The clatter of dice, the rattle of Doritos bags, the thump of miniatures, and the familiar sight of the scarred table that nobody particularly likes in the corner tell us we've entered the gaming hut. Today in the gaming hut, things seem to be dramatic. And indeed, they are um, uh, so dramatic that it's as though we need a whole system to handle how dramatic they are. Robin, what are we going to play today around our scarred but somehow lovable table? So we're going to uh, bring our Hillfoot book from the shelf and demonstrate uh, what a series pitch is. So uh, Drama System, as you uh, may know if you're a regular listener to the podcast, is my uh, game design for Pelgrane that uh, works around the whole idea of dramatic interaction and creates an economy that uh, gives uh, player characters reasons to sometimes give in and sometimes hold back uh, when they are in emotional conflict with one another. And what unfolds over time when you play a drama system game is something that feels kind of like 
a ongoing uh, cable drama like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or uh, Masters of Sex or, or what have you. And so what I want to do today is demonstrate those sort of uh, elements of a drama system series pitch, which is a little uh, document that can be anywhere from 750 words, usually 2,000 words. You could write one that is as long as you wanted, I suppose. But the idea is to keep it uh, nice and pithy because it's not telling the players what they're going to do, but giving them inspiration for what they might choose to do over time. And so what I want to do is hit you, Ken, with a uh, prompt, and uh, you will choose a, a sort of a setting for this drama system series pitch, and then we'll go through the steps and sort of tease out the different things that might be in uh, the series pitch. And what I want to do is get you to pick a historical occultist circle that would make a great, fun, baseline setting for a, uh, in this case, a drama system game, or you could, something that you could envision as being part of an ongoing uh, cable series. So uh, is there anything that uh, sort of comes to mind as a as sort of a fascinating setting that would have a group of characters who all want something from one another and uh, continue to sort of orbit around one another. I, th I think that when you when you pitch it that way, with that low, underhand, slow hanging ball right through the strike zone, what you obviously want, and certainly I think if you're trying to sell this uh, in, in in the mind of, of of customers, be they HBO or be they your players, you want the golden dawn because if there is not a group of dysfunctional weirdos who want something from each other while still having plenty of of sex and strange goings-on happening. Nudity and mature dog. themes. Nudity, mature themes, everything but the violence is there on, on, your, on your chosen list, and you can probably sneak violence in if you really wanted to. But uh, one of the other reasons the Golden Dawn is so great is because there isn't a lot of, you know, gunplay and fisticuffs and procedural activity. A lot of it really is, why won't you treat me like a real magic user? And that is is uh, that that emotional neediness comes through so clearly when you read about the Golden Dawn. So yeah, I'm going to say let's do the Golden Dawn. Let's do the Golden Dawn series pitch for Drama System. So the first header in a series pitch is the nutshell, and this is the quick one sentence that uh, you use to convince your players that this is what they want to do and give them a sense of where the parameters are. And so the nutshell would be something like, you play fervent members of the Golden Dawn, a Victorian occultist group, and the people who love and loathe them as you struggle for enlightenment and status. Mm -hmm. Sound good to you? Yep, sounds perfect to me. Okay, so the next uh, step then is to uh, is the characters section, and you'll note that in a drama system series pitch, the characters section almost invariably comes before the setting section. And when I was working on uh, Hill Folk and uh, Blood on the Snow, which have a lot of s series pitches by many of the great stars of uh, role playing writing, uh, often I would get them in, and the writers had transposed them in the usual set of assumptions that we're used to in role-playing, which is that you start with the setting and then you figure out which characters are important in the setting. I designed the series pitch to sort of, the nutshell gives you all you really need to understand what this list of characters is about and the setting comes after. And there's an ideological thing at work there, which is saying that this game is about the characters. It's not about the world they're in, the world they're in matters, it's next, but the first thing is the characters. So what are the sorts of uh, 
characters, either real historical characters that we could base our player characters on or uh, fictionalized ones that we could sort of stick in the middle there as cable series based on historical figures often do. What are some of the uh, characters that we might uh, bullet point for this list? Well, I mean, one of the really great things about the Golden Dawn and, you know, and truly actually, I think, you know, deserves more credit than it gets is that it's really one of the first magical orders to deliberately be open both to women and men. And so you've got a lot of strong female characters. It's not just, you know, Mrs. Bram Stoker or horribly badly treated woman Aleister Crowley is abusing now. It's going to be people who in their own right are members of the Dawn and are trying to move it and accomplish the same sorts of things. So you have people like, uh, you know, Florence Farr, who is an, an actress and a musician. You have uh, Maud Gaughan, who is an Irish revolutionary. She's there mostly because she's buddies with Yates, but she's still there. Dion Fortune is comes later, but you can have a, a character based on her. She's sort of the the the, the queen of of um, uh, ceremonial magic in in Britain. She's sort of that necessary step between Golden Dawn and more domesticated occultism of the angels and walk-ins and 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 naked witches type level. But she's still a, a really strong occultist and, and occult thinker. The fact that you know she's um, uh, her her later teachings have been sort of watered down is not really her fault. She's she's a good a good character. Um, you have all kinds of, of, of female characters. Uh, like I say, you can have female authors, you can have female mystics, actresses, lots of those people. So pretty much any kind of exciting woman you can imagine in the 1890s can show up there. And then, of course, your guys, you've got Aleister Crowley, who is so good, he's almost got to be an NPC just so that the GM can use him to screw with whatever's going on, because that's what he actually did. But you have McGregor Mathers, right, the the founder of the Golden Dawn, who wants to know why everyone doesn't treat him seriously as a as 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 a magician? You've got uh, the coroner of the city of London, William Westcott. So you've got uh, Algernon Blackwood. You've got Bram Stoker. You've got uh, uh, William Butler Yeats. Obviously, you've got Sex Romer. Uh, all of these guys, uh, Charles Williams, people who can be put into the the Golden Dawn. Some of them showed up once or twice. Some of them were full on members. Arthur Machen. Uh, a Golden Dawn guy. So you've got, you've got really the all-star list of name recognition authors from the 1890s. Plus you have A.E. Waite, who is, you know, one of the great occultists. An American, but he, but he lives in England and he's an occult scholar and he's terrific. You, you've got uh, the Buddhist uh, scholar, Charles Henry Bennett. You've got a lot of people who, you know, you've got doctors, you've got a, a similarly broad range of possible Golden Dawn members, in addition to sort of your 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 straight up May guy like uh, Crowley and Mathers and those people. So your bullet pointed list of characters would uh, basically just give you one line on each of these uh, historical figures and uh, and also give you uh, sort of ideas for fictionalized characters that you could add as well. So that would you know you would have uh, Sax Romer, author of uh, Fu Manchu and uh, journalist familiar with the uh, Limehouse District, and that would be your uh, line for him. Or you would just have another line that would be author of thrillers or, you know, wannabe politician with an yen for the strange. And that would be all you would uh, get or need in the character section. Now, then the players would take these and flesh them out by establishing their dramatic poles. And this would be the internal opposition within them that you use to play off through the course of the uh, drama system game. And this is what allows you the flexibility to pivot. So you're not just 
uh, working on one impulse, but you're working on two different impulses that people can appeal to or that you can default to. The, your character doesn't seem inconsistent when they give in on things because they're switching their dramatic poles. Are there any of the historical characters that you've listed, Ken, that you can uh, readily think up uh, dramatic poles for off the top of your head? I mean, Yates, I think, is, is a strong dramatic pole because he is he, he wants to be a practical revolutionary. He wants to do real measurable good in the world, but he also wants to talk to fairies and write poetry. I mean, so poet and revolutionary might be the two, or poet and politician might be the two poles that you have between Yates. For Machen, you have um, uh, Christian and mystic might be his two poles, because he's he's a believing Christian, but he also wants to be part of this magical world that exists just beyond his reach. He's got, you know, a, a lot of depression issues to work through at this time in his life. Uh, but uh, those might be sort of his poles. Uh, someone like Sax Romer might be xenophobia and xenophilia, because obviously he hates and fears the strange and the far, but he's inexorably drawn to it, and, and because that's why he hangs out in Limehouse as a journalist, and that's why he um, uh, is, you know, always reading up on, you know, Egyptian mythology and whatnot. Uh, before we move on to the next step, uh, are there any of the women you can think of uh, dramatic poles for? I don't know, necessarily know their characters as well. Dion Fortune uh, might have the same Christian and mystic uh, pole that I gave to uh, Machen. That certainly seems to be one of the, the, the polarities in her work is to what extent is she giving exercises, prayer exercises for good Christian folk, and to what extent is she saying this is Egyptian ceremonial magic that you can do. Right, and there's nothing wrong in drama system with having two characters that have the same poles because that actually gives you sort of a rich uh, interaction with each other because you can each be, you can ally with each other and break from each other and uh, and there are certain poles that are uh, very common throughout uh, drama systems. So uh, mm -hmm. selfishness versus altruism, for example, uh, is one that comes up in almost every game. Yeah, it's someone like Florence Farr, you might be able to say um, publicity and, uh, and and secrecy, right? She's, she's involved in a lot of uh, sort of um, underground movements or, or quasi-underground movements. She's a big uh, Fabian socialist, I think, at the time. and but, but she's also an actress, so everything has got to be about her and has got to be you know, risk for the mill for publicity, but much of the power of her self-image comes from the fact that she's in on things that no one else is in on. And so I think that that's maybe a, a thing you could use for, for your actress uh, people. Someone like uh, Annie Horneman, who is a theater producer, but is also connected to wealth, her poll might be a class poll. It might be upper-class upbringing versus raffish occultist interests. It could be aristocrat versus bohemian. Yeah, exactly. That, that would be an, an ideal choice uh, for her. So the next header uh, in a drama system series pitch is setting. And uh, for setting, you would, we would just lay out the things that we said in uh, Ken's earlier segment about the Golden Dawn. And that would give you, uh, there'd be sort of a background about uh, the, the era and also particularly their circles and a bit of a history. And you would probably want to choose uh, sort of a default a starting date or provide the group guidance in choosing mm -hmm. their own starting date. I think you might want to do that with uh, the same way that you did with uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, where there's the list of, you know, when they joined the Golden Dawn and when they left the Golden Dawn, and depending on who you want to play, you you ideally want to circle around the years that everyone that you want to play is in the Golden Dawn together. Right, and if you you cut it the right way, that allows you to have a couple of the characters. The first session is when the latest characters of this bunch to fall in with the circle. That's the first yeah, episode. Their initiation or their you know first ritual or whatever. Right, and that gives you a very active thing that gets the story ball uh, uh, rolling. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing you do in a series pitch is themes, and that 
is yet another list of bullet points, and these are ones that uh, in a drama system uh, you rotate the duties from session to session of one participant, who can be the GM or one of the players, deciding what the theme of the episode is. This is often sort of feels like an episode title after a while. And then at the end of the session, you get goodies in the game by articulating how well you had your character interact with the theme. So are there, obviously there are key themes that we've already uh, touched on as, you know, respectability, bohemianism, searching, questing, and uh, also you can have, you know, there are little proverbs and stuff that you are commonplace phrases that you can use, like almost any drama system uh, game. Eventually you can use all hell breaks loose. It would have a particular resonance here. As above, so below, your, your good magical phrases. I would find it virtually impossible if I were writing this for Showtime or if I were running it as a game to avoid trying to have at least one episode for each degree level of the of the dawn. So you begin, your first episode is Neophyte, right? And then Zelator, which doesn't mean anything, but can, you know, sounds like Zealot, so that might be a, a big fighty scene. Theoric, Theoricus, that might be something where you're, like, studying a magical, you know, you, you can sort of add these, like the Golden Dawn does, you add the symbolism that you bring to the, the table. Practicus, Philosophus, Portal, uh, adeptus minor, then it gets boring. Adeptus minor, adeptus major, adeptus exemptus. But I think minor, major, and exempt might be interesting. Magister templi, magus, and ipsissimus, which is such a, a great word, but it doesn't really mean anything. But that's obviously like your season finale, ipsissimus. And that's like the big showdown between, you know, Crowley and Yates or between, you know, one of your characters and Crowley or something like that. Uh, writes itself. And it's sort of similar to the way that, uh, Hannibal episode titles work where each, is named after a particular exotic, difficult-to-prepare-a-meal. And then the final entry is uh, Turning the Screws, and these are uh, bullet-pointed ideas for uh, plot developments that might occur as you go along, and this is something that the GM either might throw into the mix uh, during their uh, scenes, or even the players can look at this, And because in Drama System, you can very easily, as a player, frame a scene where it's like, oh, well, the the village is burning down and I am talking to uh, Iron Hand. Or in this case, you would have uh, such turning the screws as... Oh, well, um, like I mentioned earlier, Alistair Crowley screws you uh, is, is a great one because he is, you know, basically he gets into the dawn and he's trying to rise as far as he possibly can and get as much power in it as he possibly can. So he's always going to be a r rival Anything that everyone agrees that they're going to do, he goes and does something else in Paris and then comes back and claims that Mathers told him he could. And, and so Alistair Crowley can always get upside of whatever your plan is. He is, he is such a great uh, NPC that you, I would be tempted to say no one gets to play Crowley except the, the GM. Well, that, that might just be me gre being greedy because I always love doing Crowley as an NPC because he's so horrible. Yeah, because the thing about Drama System, in fact, is you can have a player actually take on the role of a really disruptive uh, sort of anti-hero character. Yeah. Um, because if this was a cable show, you know, that the, the anti-hero is the thing now. So uh, Crowley would obviously be a series regular uh, played by, uh, you know, a, a well-known actor. So uh, you wouldn't have, to, you know, the only requirement would just be that uh, the uh, player would have to do a little homework. But that would be true with uh, any of the historical characters. But you can have... Political pressure is, is one of the things there's, um, there, there's obviously some degree of, of, you know, pressure as, as Ireland continues to boil over. The Irish members of the order are, are trying to sort of 
turn it a little bit political or in some cases, you know, uh, make it less involved with the, with the real world and more involved in the magical world. The drive, you know, between, you know, how far do we go magically? That's always a big one. You can have a, an evocation that gives you something dubious or, or, or disturbing that, and maybe some of the members are like, eh, looking behind one too many veils here. You can have, depending on when you, uh, set it, if it's, it's really early, um, Jack the Ripper, uh, of course, is killing people in 1888. Uh, Westcott is the coroner for London. He does the inquest of, I think, one or two of the, of the Ripper victims. Rip, the Ripper's a little too early, but you can certainly have another serial killer, a, a Ripper copycat, and then the characters are like, wasn't Westcott our, hold on, this is not good. And so there's some outside event that looks occult and looks demonic that people are in the know are saying, I think it might be the Golden Dawn folk. And it might be one of the things that really did happen a lot. People would say, I'm going to, res- I'm going to retire. I hate your stupid order and I'm going to publish everything that we've ever done and you can't stop me. And that, you know, the fact that it only happened in the 1930s doesn't mean that it, uh, it didn't keep almost happening throughout the, the history of the order. And the order did in fact fission, uh, in 1901, and in 1903, uh, so a couple of times you have, you know, people who take their, their bat and their ball and they go start their own magic order. Right. That could be your, again, a, a season ender, like, uh, where Mad Men, where they break off and start their own rival agency. Yeah. And they kind of a, a schism be the, uh, the big thing that gives you your, uh, season finish. So, uh, basically that's the, uh, process of, uh, riffing up a, uh, drama system series pitch so you can see how uh, open it is and uh, how uh, easy it is if you if it, particularly if it's a, a period or a milieu that you that you know this week's episode brought to you in part by the bundle of holding now presenting a bargain too great for the human mind to correlate. Awaited for eons, and finally here, it's the Trail of Cthulhu bundle from Pelgrane Press. This new offer gives you everything you need to start your own Trail of Cthulhu campaign. Much of it written by your very own Ken and Robin. Get the complete Trail of Cthulhu's rulebook, the Keeper's resource book and screen, and the scenario collection's stunning Eldritch Tales, a $38 value. Really? That's only a $38 value? Man. For just eight ninety five, And by paying a little more, you also get an entire collection of bonus supplements, including Bookhounds of London, worth it just for that alone, the Armitage Files, and more. All complete current PDF ebooks with no copy protection. 10% of your purchase goes to charities chosen by Palgrain Press. This Trail of Cthulhu offer only lasts a week through Monday, May 12th at the Bundle of Holding site, bundleofholding.com. That's bundleofholding.com, where the deals have read the Necronomicon and gone insane. The mysterious hieroglyphics on the wall, the pulsing of a shadowy flame that we cannot see, and the remains of a drum circle tell us that we've now entered the Mythology Hut, and this week on Mythology Hut, we're going to look at uh, someone who, uh, Ken, you promised uh, that you would look into this mythological figure in an earlier episode, and of course we keep our promises here at Ken and Robin. Absolutely. So we want to look at Lilith. Other than a uh, character on Frasier, who was Lilith? Well, that will get you all kinds of arguments, as well it should. But traditionally, and by traditionally, I mean since about 900 A.D., Lilith has been 
Adam's first wife. And that would be because, if you look at Genesis, there are two creation stories. In one of them, God makes both man and woman from the dirt and uh, breathes life into them on the sixth day, and you're done. Boom. Man and fe- male and female, he created them. Bang. And then they do another Genesis story a little bit later where God makes woman from Adam's rib. And uh, that's how Eve comes to be. And so if you are of a rabbinical cast of thought rather than say, well, obviously these are two different attempts to explain the same basic truth that we're children of God and blah, blah, blah. You say, holy gazebos, there's a second wife of Adam out there wandering around. What can that mean? And apparently this was such a big hot topic in the rabbinic schools of the uh, early medieval era that someone wrote a parody of them, which is the only part of the argument that has survived, called The Alphabet of Ben Sirach. And in that, it sets out the story that Adam uh, and Lilith are both created by God, and they get into a fight over who's on top during sex. And neither one wants to be on the bottom during sex, and so Lilith says, screw you, I don't need to obey you, Uh, we're made equal, I'm going to leave, and we're not ever going to have any sex. This seems like one of those problems that could be easily solved by compromise. It does. I guess then you wouldn't have a myth. Then you you wouldn't have a myth. And so uh, she pronounces the ineffable name and flies away into the air. And that's the end of that argument. Um, and she goes off and... End of Ad- that marriage. And, well, and Adam uh, tries to get her back. He calls God and says, hey, what the hell, man? And God's like, okay. And he sends three angels, uh, Sanvi, Sansavi, and Samangaleph, or Senoi, Sanzanui, and... Well, anyway, there's no vowels. It's all a bunch of Samanifazos. And so he sends them off to get Lilith back, and uh, they fly off and say, hey, Lilith... Um, Maybe you guys could compromise, and she's in a she's mad, and she says, "I'll tell you what, if he ever does have kids uh, by anyone else, I'll kill them, and that will show you how serious I am." And the angel's like, "Whoa, uh, this is the human race you're talking about," and they said, "If you do that, God is going to kill all of your kids," and so they sort of compromise that the angels will only kill a hundred of her kids every uh, day, and Lilith will only kill children who haven't been circumcised, or in the case of girl children, who haven't been alive a month yet. And so that you know, they, they, they shake hands and, and they go off, and Lilith is left to have demon children by Cain or uh, Asmodeus or, or some other figure that will be introduced later on in the myth. And uh, they agree that if the three angels' names are on a talisman, she can't kill any kids regardless of how old they are. And that's sort of that that ends the story of the um uh, of the alphabet of Ben Sirach and that's sort of Lilith's origin story as far as the Lilith that we all sort of think about and recognize when we hear the story of Lilith. And indeed, uh talismans marked with the angel names do appear in in digs of Jewish homes in Mesopotamia and Persia from about the fifth century uh going forward. And so therefore there is at least some part of that legend that pre pre existed the dirty joke that was the alphabet of Ben Sirach. So now Lilith is also made into a parallel figure with uh, various earlier female deities from the Mesopotamian mm-hmm. region. Yeah. Uh, there's a piece of uh, statuary in particular in the uh, British Museum that we were looking at. And uh, so how is that connection drawn? How tenuous a connector is that? Now you can get Literally every part of that argument has been made one way or the other. So people can say there's no connection whatsoever, it's just a coincidence, all the way to are you crazy if there is a demon, a female demon that kills children and it's called Lilithu, obviously it's the same damn demon. 
The Assyrians had the demon Lilitu. This may or may not have come from the Babylonian word Lilu, meaning night, and it may or which may or may not have come from the Sumerian word Lil, meaning both wind and female demon, uh, as in Kisikalilake, who is a uh, owl demon who uh, lives in a tree in the garden of Inanna, and uh, Gilgamesh uh, chases her away, apparently because she's a demon and he's Gilgamesh, and that's what happens. Uh, we don't that's what Gilgamesh does. You're a demon. He chases you away. You, you don't really know. We, we don't have enough of the tablet or whatever to know what the backstory is there. But just like in um, the alphabet of Ben Sirach, she flies away into the desert, and that's, uh, I guess, what Lilith does. It's her behavior. So this uh, tablet that's in uh, the British Museum is called officially the Queen of the Night, and she has owls, uh, and so people are like, oh ho, there's a connection to our girl Lilith, or Lilithu. And later on, people get into a big squabbly fight over the fact that she has goddess features. She has, um, uh, She's depicted in the traditional way that you tr- depict a goddess. She's holding uh, rods and rings, and she's wearing a horned crown, uh, which make her a god, and people say, well, you know, don't rush to judgment. Lilith is never, ever, ever described as a goddess. She's always a demon. And so this can't be Lilith. This must be... But a demon is just a god who's been fired. Well, that's that's what you in your postmodern way say. Maybe in Canada <laughs> that's true. But by God in Babylon, they have forms to fill out. And so... In, in triplicate clay tablets. Absolutely. And so they say maybe that she's Ishtar, Inanna, same goddess, basically, or Erish Kigal, who is the goddess of the underworld. But, of course, neither of those have ever been associated with owls. So you have either a goddess of owls that no one knows who she is, or you have Lilith, who has been promoted by the carver of this tablet into a goddess for whatever purpose. And the, the tablet, is, it's got its own sort of weird history, having been... There, there's no provenance of it being dug up. It just shows up in the British Museum because a Syrian art dealer drops it off there, and the British Museum authenticates it, but that's 1933, so, you know, who knows what they're doing. They've authenticated worse things than that. And it's bought by a modern art dealer, a guy who has no interest in archaeological artifacts at all, named Sidney Burney, which is why it's called the Burney Relief. He buys it and then sells it on to a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Norman Colville, and he keeps it in Cornwall until Colville dies, at which point it's almost bought by a Japanese billionaire, but the British government decides to prevent it from leaving the country as a national art treasure. Right, because they they must preserve their Assyrian heritage. Exactly, yes, that's right. The the national art treasure that we probably got from Syria somewhere. And so there's a, there's a lot of sort of weird questions about what's going on with that, but eventually the British Museum buys it and puts it up and calls it the Queen of the Night and has a lovely book that explains very patiently that, no, this isn't Lilith and stop coming and looking at our statue. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what they do. But the other reason that people care about Lilith, in addition now, to... Isn't that book called Lilith, though? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and so they, uh, they, the, the other reason that they, um, that, that they have this uh, fascination for Lilith is because she is name-checked in the Bible once in the book of Isaiah, which is written in 720 BC, this part of Isaiah. And so, therefore, this is the first actual appearance of the word Lilith anywhere. And it is from Isaiah 34, 13. Uh, Wild cats shall meet with desert beasts. Satyrs shall call to one another. 
There shall Lilith repose and find for herself a place to rest. And this is referring to the kingdom of Edom, which will be laid waste by God because Edom is mean to the Jews. And that's what happens to people who are mean to the Jews in the Bible, is that God will fix them. And it'll be so crummy that Lilith, who famously flees into the desert. Right. When, when he's not busy fixing the Jews for being ungrateful for all the other smiting. For all the other smiting. Well, he's a busy guy. Yeah. That's why he finally subcontracts it and takes the rest of the Testament off. Anyway, the word Lilith is in Hebrew, and it's the word Lilith, and it's just right there. And the the scholars who were translating it didn't know that it was a proper name a lot of times, and so they translated it as Night Hag or Screech Owl or Nightjar or, best of all, in the Septuagint, Lamia. And Lamia is, of course, the famous child-eating demon goddess of... Uh, the ancient Greeks. And so once you've added Lamia, who is more snaky than Auli to the, the mix, that's when you start seeing Lilith get sort of snaky imagery. And th- since the Lamia is also used as a, as a particularly seductive vampire, her succubus characteristics sort of pop in from this felicitous mistranslation, I guess is what you might call it, of Lilith as Lamia. Although, again, if you're looking for a child-eating demon and you don't think people will recognize Lilith, Lamia is not a bad choice. So here's our, our mythological background, and you wrote a Ken Writes About Stuff installment about uh, Lilith. So how yes. did you hook her into uh, people's gaming? Uh, I hooked her into all manner of people's gaming because, as a proper goddess is, she has a lot of outfits and can pretty much show up anywhere. Uh, I uh, Obviously, Lovecraft mentions Lilith in the horror at Red Hook. She is the a big bad in that <laughs> big bad story. She is the phosphorescent, uh, leprous limbed monstrosity that sits on the golden throne underneath Brooklyn and, uh, you know, makes fixie bikes and releases Florence and the Machine albums or whatever. Which is a rare instance of him just using a mythological enemy instead of reconfiguring it into his own mythology. Well, he still reconfigures Lilith because he associates her with Mormo, the thousand-faced moon, who he found out about from, I think, the the Encyclopedia Britannica. And she is not portrayed in his fiction the way that she is in the myth, just like Dagon in his story Dagon does not resemble the god Dagon, except sort of in a fishy sense. And so Lilith, as a uh, succubus and seductress, uh, who deals with dead things is sort of like our Lilith, but it, Lovecraft's Lilith is is sort of different. And so, uh, you know, if you've got Lilith underneath Brooklyn, I suppose you have all manner of possibilities for for Call or Trail of Cthulhu. And then I presented, as is my wont, a bunch of different possible uh, mythos interpretations of Lilith. You know, she might be a great old one. She might be one of the weak gods of Earth, like uh, uh, Hypnos or Bast. She might be a full-on elder goddess who is protecting mankind by culling out the genetic inferior who are not going to be able to resist the taint of the Deep Ones or whatever. She might just be another name for Shubnigarath. There's all manner of possible ways you can bring Lilith into stuff. And I think that uh, that with uh, a, a Trail of Cthulhu especially, the more you explain about Lilith, the less fun you have. And instead, you should just be introducing her as a, as a monster or her Lilithu, which are the specific Assyrian demons that we talked about, you can use them as sort of a, a creepy child-killing version of the Byaki if you want to. And I give stats for that, as well as Knight's Black Agent stats, because the other thing people now know about Lilith is that she's a vampire, which it's hard to say how that particular, you know, circuit closed. George uh, MacDonald wrote a novel called Lilith in which there is some mention of blood drinking, but uh, she doesn't really get 
specifically mentioned as a blood-drinking spirit until Jewish magical parchments in the 17th century, which are not particularly, you know, pop culture. But eventually, she's uh, in Tomb of Dracula, the terrific um, uh, series from Marvel, um, and she's in... Uh, I think she's in um, True Blood. I think she shows up as a, as a Queen of the Vampires. And by now, people, if they don't think of Lilith as the first wife of Adam, they think of her as the Queen of the Vampires. So there's plenty of things that she can be up to in uh, your Nice Black Agents game, including screwing with Dracula, which is one of the... If you make her Dracula's first wife, who we don't know who her, who her name was, she committed suicide, legendarily. So she's dead of a suicide, which is how you become a vampire. So if she's a vampire, she's a vampire who's just as old as Dracula. If she's his first wife, she's probably ticked off about something. And so she goes around messing with Dracula. Well, there's this sort of undertone to her mythology that she's sort of the revenge of the suppressed matriarchy. So yeah. uh, you could uh, have her be kind of the liberator of all of Dracula's harems and getting them out of the basement and getting them out and uh, and kicking ass. And, mm-hmm. and the idea of a conflict between her and Dracula gives you the fun option in a more sort of uh, Bond movie R-Man Flint uh, take on Knight's Black Agents, where they are your perhaps unreliable allies. Which, again, is, is standard for the uh, for the genre, that the female associate turns out to be the weak link, um, which is just good old sexist writing, but is also, it, it makes it a more complex story than, well, I just beat up his minions until I got to him, and then I beat up him, and that was it. Well, if, if you take weird gender politics out of vampires, you have no vampires anymore. You, 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 are, you are missing a lot of fun, certainly. I, I did uh, Lilith as an esoteric uh, operation, because, of course, the great arguments and fighting over which Lilith is which one, and, and, and are the Assyrian Lilith the same as Lilith, all of that tells me that there is a magical symbol that people are fighting over, and that therefore that uh, the more attention is paid to Lilith, the, the thinner the veil gets around her. And so I, I presented a, um, uh, a sort of a, an operation to make a fake Lilith cult by a esoteric group to draw people's attention to Lilith and get them all focused on Lilith such that that attention would then get people say, well, I bet Lilith really existed, and then bang, there you go. Uh, well, that gives people a lot to work with in reconfiguring Lilith for their games, so I think we can... Uh pronounce our mythological duties done and move on to the next segment. projector, the uh, smell of fresh buttered popcorn, and the comfortable reclining seats tell us that we are in a modern refurbished cinema hut, but the scary music and the gargoyles flying overhead tell us we are in a horror hut as well. So here in our horror cinema hut, Robin, what are you attempting to draw our attention to there on the, on the flickering, I said flickering already, no, they're all flickering. On the flickering screen, Robin. Uh, the, the new flickering digital screen, uh, the 4K right. screen. So uh, I thought we would look at what's big in horror film right now. And the interesting thing about horror, I think because it is a disreputable genre that uh, makes money, is that it's still sort of even more okay 
than usual to jump in and beat a trend to death and move on to the next trend. And so <laughs> horror films tend to go in cycles. And it's sort of interesting to look at the new version of a new cycle when it arises and also try to figure out what's going on in the broader culture that makes this resonant at the moment. And so right now we're in the middle of a, a big resurgence of the haunting movie. And uh, that intersects with another couple of things. It began with an, a revisiting of the found footage movie, which is uh, attractive uh, because it's so cheap to do. So that's your paranormal activity and the incredible ratio of box office to budget of that film then spawned a whole other wave of haunted house and supernatural movies. And I think the distinguishing feature of this new wave of haunted house movies is that they fuse the ghost mythology with the demon mythology. And I think probably one of the reasons for that would be that demons just seem scarier than ghosts. It's hard to make a ghost seem threatening uh, through the whole course of, of an entire uh, film. So uh, this has led to different variations. Uh, Insidious was another uh, big hit, and that, mm -hmm. again, sort of combined the uh, tropes of the uh, exorcist wave of the of the 70s with the sort of earlier ghost wave. And a lot of these films owe their DNA to uh, the haunting of, of Hill House down to the fact that a lot of them are either set in the early 70s or uh, just really evoke that parapsychological equipment vibe. And you've got uh, not only a whole lot of films that do that, but also there's a recent Doctor Who episode that tips its hat pretty obviously to that. So, Ken, do you have any theories as to uh, why this brand of horror is on such a huge role at this moment in history? I'm not usually one of those guys that uses economic explanations for stuff. I, I think that that's way overdetermined. But I think that the argument that the American Haunted House movie is a movie of middle-class precarious terror... The, the Amityville Horror is one of the classic examples as well that I think is, is where a lot of, more of the touches are coming from. I wish they were coming from The Haunting of Hill House, but uh, definitely um, the Amityville Horror is where a lot of these are coming from as well. Yes. And that also combines the, the demon-ghost paradigm as well. Insidious has a big chunk of, of Hill House, and uh, the, the, the Quiet Ones, which is coming out soon mm -hmm. with Jared Harris, obviously, is uh, tweaking that bow. Yeah, and it's it's not really an either-or, but I think that they're both very much part of this. And I think that Amityville Horror especially sets off a, a train of movies where it's a nice young couple, and they've got a kid or maybe a couple of kids, and they're moving into more house that they can afford, but it's a crazy bargain, and so they can't afford not to buy it. And then, of course, it turns out that the reason it's a crazy bargain is because there's ghosts and witches and buried Indians and God knows what going on. And it becomes a terror that I've bought a house that I can't get rid of. And I think that that is a huge reason that, the, that those movies just blew up in the 70s during the great inflation and the, and the great uh, first boom in, in housing prices. And then I think that that's another reason that they're happening now in the, in the wake of the, of the housing crunch, that the loss of so much equity uh, has left people sensitive. I mean, I'm not saying people like, you know, lose their house and they go make movies. I'm saying that audiences become more sensitized to that specific 
very specific domestic fear. My house is trying to kill me. Worry. Yes, there's something wrong with my house and I, I can't get out. Or one feature of this recent wave is an improvement in uh, script justification technology. <laughs> and it comes from paranormal activity and it's restated in all sorts of them. Uh, even in Dark Skies, which is uh, takes the structure and reskins it as uh, as gray UFOs. aliens, right, yeah. uh, which is that it's not the house that's haunted. You are haunted and moving to another house isn't going to help. Right. And, and I think that a lot of that is, is you know, first of all, it's because it, it, it purports to be a clever twist and sometimes is well done and sometimes is not. And so that's why I think why a lot of people like it. And I think a lot of people also like it. And I think it, it feeds into the economic problem because the, the notion that now you know, somehow the bad luck of your house has transferred itself to you and that you have, and you are now inexorably doomed to poverty or never getting to order the, the, the good coffee at Starbucks. You are basically going to be marked with the brand of didn't get into the right college. Don't get to be part of the fancy people world on TV. And, and I think that that is a lot. And if you look at the, the people in these movies, they're all coded as aspirational white collar people. There, there's never, a rich jerk who deserves what happens to them in these movies. It's always people that you can identify with that are trying to move up in social status and are being horribly punished for that. Right, and they're really uh, sympathetically drawn, and uh, because these films are all trying to be a slow-burn film, you spend a lot of time with these sort of middle-class sympathetic families. And as mm -hmm. such, I think this is you know an improvement of this the prior horror wave, which was the slasher movie remake wave, mm -hmm. uh, where they made all of the victims horrible. And that always raises a question of, so why do you care that they're being sliced up? You yes. don't particularly. And uh, part of that, I think, is because they, uh, they think the audience wants to identify with the killer. But I think part of it is also just not well thought out storytelling. You can you can never rule out that in any uh, discussion of film at all, right? And and it's and, and you can also make a, a political parallel to to that whole wave very briefly in that that's the that's the war on terror era of horror, and the ghost movie is now the Great Recession era of horror. Yeah, you can certainly you know the the number of torture scenes in relatively conventional procedurals has just skyrocketed since 9-11 and in scenes in which the heroes are torturing people and everyone's like, well, you know, you got to find out who was in the motel that day. That's how it works. And, you know, very, very much accepted in a way that it wasn't before then. And I think you can see that element of the, of the mythology being sort of mainstreamed in dramas and made horrified in horror films exactly the way that, you know, surgical wounds were after World War One, And I think that you have you have a lot of, of that same sort of, we have to accept it because everyone does it, but it's still scary as hell dichotomy going on with, with torture. And I think that the haunted house, again, the haunted children motif, because I think that a lot of that is because it's being redoubled, again, as it was in the 70s, by a lot of ecological paranoia about, oh, no, we're going to overpopulate the planet and everyone's going to boil to death, and children become a locus of terror I think a lot of it in, in the days of the Omen was because the baby boom suddenly realized they weren't going to be the young people forever, and they were legitimately terrified about young people coming along. But I think now there's a degree that... That's more about the difficulty of protecting your children from the upcoming uh, apocalypse than the children being the, the source of but, evil. But, but the ones in which the, the children become the conduit of the horror, like, like Insidious, I think that you, you can send more than one message with a movie and, and tap into more than one fear. And I think that the, the notion that, you know... If if we if if the kid wasn't along, everything would be fine. But he's somehow the conduit of this of this monster thing that's going to kill us all. Now, aesthetically, one of the things that strikes me about this cycle is that 
a lot of them have no third act. Yeah, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. So the, the whole slow burn is often kind of effective and they kind of work on me. But with a haunting or possession or even gray aliens standing in for demons movie, so few of them have another place to go once it begins to escalate or you get mm -hmm. uh, insidious where it goes somewhere, but that somewhere is ridiculous and not scary. Is there a, a particular one in this uh, cycle that you would point to as uh, sidestepping that issue? Uh, you mean having a, having a, a, a good third, third act, act and actually sticking the landing um, in the modern. And, and I have not seen a ton of these, you know, conjuring, et cetera, um, apparition, the, 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 because a lot of them just get such terrible, terrible rating on on on, on Rotten Tomatoes, and I am I've, I've got a limited amount of time to watch horror movies, and I would rather watch good, interesting horror movies that are doing good, interesting things. So I'm not sifting as many of these things yeah. for gems. And, and you can't rely like action movies. You can't rely on critics to yeah. sort the good from the bad for you because they're or, or even the ones I want to watch from the from the bad. Yes, they're, they're <laughs> deprecated by by critics so that a, a lot of things will get marked down just for being a horror film. The ones that I think do a better job with the third act, The Conjuring is does a not bad job of sort of turning into a Linda Blair movie with Lily Taylor at the end. And so it escalates without going into another crazy dimension. It's still, you know, just a reconfiguration of a haunted house movie plus Exorcist. But for what it is, it does an okay job. The one that I think is really genuinely uh, creepy is Sinister with uh, Ethan Hawke. Um, and that actually has another place to go and uh, has a cool, uh, has some really creepy things. Is a, do, have you seen that one? Um, I haven't. Um, so that's one where one of the real conduits of horror is they find all of these films in the house of other families all over America being hideously POV murdered. And those sort of super eight films of these are so creepy and so disturbing. Um, and so that works really well, and there's, they're able to have a sort of slow reveals, and of course you can't get the films out of the house. And then it has another way to get bigger at the end that I think really works. So that's in a generally kind of undistinguished cycle. It's the one that I'd say is worth uh, checking out and does something a little different. Uh, that same director has now got one coming up called Deliver Us From Evil, which is uh, another one. These are all based in, on or inspired by true events, and this has an NYPD police officer played by Eric Bana encountering the uh, standard horror haunting trope. So maybe that will give us a, another uh, magic cop that we can reference in, uh, in Feng Shui. Yeah. In, in terms of movies that do the thing well, there's a one that sort of predates the, the, the Great Recession, but it, it, it comes out, I think, and, and earns its sequel during the Great Recession. It's The Messengers, which is a Pang Brothers film. Kristen Stewart is the is the name actor. I think Penelope Ann Miller is in it too, and that one doesn't really have a good ending. But it makes that second part last so long and has so many variants in the second part, sort of twists within the second act. That the third act, which is and then the ghost goes away, is actually you know it, it's sort of tacked on, but. You've enjoyed the ride so much. The, the roller coaster part of it is constructed so well. I, I, again, I can't really say that it sticks the ending because it doesn't, but it sticks the second act pretty well. Well, it is a Pang Brothers film. Yeah, right. And so I, I would say that's, you know, maybe of the, of the, of the new haunted horror genre. I mean, there was, um, predating this, there was a, Nicole Kidman, uh, did a remake of, uh, one, I think it was The Others or something like that. 
that I thought was uh, was was really effective. What was that? Was it the others? It was the others. Yes, the, the others. I thought, uh, and that's of course uh, 2001. So that's well before this this era. But I think that it's you know it 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 was a really good version of this sort of ghost story story. Uh, the ending is a little bit telegraphed, but it's still really effective. Nicole Kidman is of course terrific, and I think that that may be another one of those things that acts as you know the the early call. I mean, it's obviously it's remaking a remake, I think, at this point. But a lot of the tropes that we see being recycled in these later Haunted House movies were done by um, Amenabar in The Others when he directed it. So that's something to keep an eye out for anyway. And I think a, a more recent ghost movie that I would put aside as, as being apart from the cycle because it's not contemporary. It's more of a, a neo-Hammer film from mm-hmm. the new Hammer, uh, The Woman in Black. Yeah, uh, is actually really uh, effective at being a ghost movie, staying a ghost movie throughout, and actually having a third act. And it was also a um, uh, a novel book. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a remake of a movie that was based on a novel. I think is is how that ran. There was there was another one about a haunted school that I thought worked sort of well, if, if only because it it had a different setting than the same haunted house, but it was still you know you're going back into your past and and like that. I I, I know I forget I forget the title and everything else about it, but I remember it being at least more interesting than the ghost movie because there were so many... I, th- I think that one had like three surprise endings, and so if you didn't like... It was like Clue. If you didn't like one of them, you could enjoy the other two. Uh, well, that brings us to multiple ending syndrome, which is, is another topic, and also a, a topic that I'd hope to get to, but we've run out of time, is how to actually make ghosts uh, scary in your game. So we'll have to get to that uh, in a later episode and move on to our next segment. The Warring of Time Gears and the Clacking of Chronicons tells us we're once again in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle he uses to go back into history and to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate the time stream. This week, transformed dragon Justin Mahareb wants to know about the mysterious revocation of Richard Nixon's FBI application. Early in his career, before he went into politics, he applied to be a G-man, was apparently accepted, but never received a notification of that, and so went on to be the Richard M. Nixon we all remember. And this, you know, this paperwork failure, essentially, uh, smells to me like uh, time stream interference. And so the question in my mind, Ken, is did you do that to prevent a worse future, or is that the action of a rogue time effectuator that you have to go back and undo now? This one was me. As much as I thrill to the thought of Richard Nixon saying, uh, stick him up, and having him hunting down burglars of the Watergate, sadly, I had to uh, preempt that glorious time stream because it did indeed turn much, much worse. So what did that alternate uh, horrible uh, timeline look like? I'm glad you asked, because otherwise this segment would have been a minute long. The horrible timeline, uh, Richard Nixon is, of course, approved because he is exactly the kind of guy that director Hoover wants. He's a a Quaker. He's a good, solid law school graduate, a smart guy, uh, well-read, paranoid. He's exactly who you want as an FBI agent. He's upright and also a weasel. And also a weasel. He's perfect. So he is an FBI agent. He rises rapidly in the ranks. Um, He has the gift of kissing up that our, our Richard Milhouse has. 
had and is rapidly... And, and no one more receptive to that than J. Edgar. No one more receptive than J. Edgar. So he, he rapidly rises in the ranks. Eisenhower runs in 1952 with uh, Representative Thomas Wordle as his running mate, and therefore... Wordle is the guy who is beaten by Joseph Kennedy's money and the Texas machine in 1960. And Kennedy is assassinated in 1963. Nixon is one of the FBI directors who is in charge of preparing the Warren Commission report. And he, you know, goes down to Dallas. He starts looking into it. And being Richard Nixon, he is immediately interested in Lee Harvey Oswald's time in Mexico City when he goes to the Soviet embassy and attempts to redefect back to the Soviet Union and the Soviets say, are you kidding? Do you realize you're Lee Harvey Oswald? Get out of here. <laughs> the Sunday that he spent in Mexico City has never been documented. No one knows what he did that day. We know what he did on Friday. He met with some low-level guys at the Soviet embassy and was told to come back tomorrow when their boss was there. Saturday, he meets with their boss. Their boss says, no, seriously, get out of here. You disgust me. You're awful. But no one knows what happens on Sunday. Uh, Nixon is digging around, can't find out what happens. The Warren re report is published basically as we have it, uh, with a, maybe a little bit heavier emphasis on the possible uh, communist connection. Oswald, of course, being a communist, it's not a possible connection. The question is, does it connect to outside communists? So, JFK is succeeded by Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson gets us into Vietnam, or Kennedy got us into Vietnam. Johnson doubles down. Johnson, in 1968 is resigning basically because the war is so terrible and unpopular. It is at this point that Richard M. Nixon, deputy director of the FBI, finally reveals in the Nixon report evidence that he's uncovered that on that Sunday, Lee Harvey Oswald met with a GRU handler, and that's why there's no record of it in the KGB. It's the Soviet military intelligence, the GRU. And they say, well, we work with unstable idiots all the time. <laughs> you are just the guy. And it's probably that they intend to use him to uh, kill Edwin Walker, the right-wing general that he'd already taken a pot shot at in April of 1963. And that's probably what the operation is, but it might have just been the GRU's habit of having just a ton of sleeper agents all over America ready to, you know, just wander around and shoot people at random. So this is the, the future draft pick, as it were. Exactly. It turns out, uh, according to the Nixon report, there's, there's enough evidence that he meets with the GRU handler. The, the inference is that the Soviets kill Kennedy because he's nearly gotten them into a world war over Cuba, and they don't want to see him get us into another one over stupid Laos or somewhere. And so they have him killed to be replaced with the theoretically less warmongering Lyndon Johnson, which works about as well as most Soviet plans do. This revelation totally upends the domestic politics scene in 1968. Robert F. Kennedy is still running, but he's now running as a anti-communist and a racial healer at home. He's trying to sort of reconstitute the old liberal consensus. He's still able to get to the right wing of Eugene McCarthy. Eugene McCarthy sputters out. Bobby Kennedy is still plugging along. Because he is aware that the communists are gunning for the Kennedys, he has considerably better bodyguards on the, on the job at uh, the Ambassador Hotel when Sirhan Sirhan is apprehended trying to kill him. His Palestinian connections, again, point a possible picture of communist involvement. Certainly, Deputy Director Nixon is happy to make that case. So uh, let me just uh, uh, back up a second. The, uh, the thing that you've uncovered here in the time stream is Nixon inventing the GRU connection, or is the GRU connection 
accurate in both timelines, including our current one. When I went back to Mexico City to find out what Oswald was doing that Sunday, he did indeed meet with someone, but I don't know that that someone was a GRU handler because I got distracted by a really good uh, burrito cart. And possibly some mojitos. And possibly some mojitos or tequila, something involving O's, and was briefly unwilling to keep paying attention to Lee Harvey Oswald, who is a horrible person in all timelines. But we have only the the sworn uh, word of Deputy Director of the FBI, Richard M. Nixon, that the rest of the story checks out. In 1968, the Republican candidate is not Richard M. Nixon. It is Ronald Reagan. And so running to the left of Ronald Reagan is not very hard. And it still means that Bobby Kennedy can run on Hubert Humphrey's basically I'll continue the war but not as badly campaign and beats Ronald Reagan worse than... Uh, Nixon beat Humphrey in the original. Bobby Kennedy comes to power. He's got a, a mad on for the communists, doubles down in Vietnam. And when the Soviets approach him in 1969 with the historical offer that they made to Nixon, if you will look the other way while we bomb China, we will give you a favor to be named later because the Russians didn't want China to get the nuclear bomb. They were going to do a, a surgical nuclear strike on the Chinese nuclear facility at Lop Nor. And Nixon, President Nixon said, no, I think we might want China to have the bomb. That would be awesome. And so that's why that didn't happen. Bobby Kennedy says, okay, here's the favor. You stop supplying SAMs to the North Vietnamese. Stop supplying the North Vietnamese. Let us win in Vietnam, and you can take out China. So the Soviets successfully uh, decapitate China's nuclear program for a time. Mao is purged. Lin Bao becomes uh, premier of China and basically turns it into a militarized communist state instead of a commercialized communist state like we have now. The Soviets say, oh, look, nuclear adventurism can be fun. Bobby Kennedy is continuing to push farther and farther into, into Vietnam. They're talking about tactical nuclear weapons on Hanoi. The American troops have crossed the parallel. They're, they're moving up. And it is on this that he runs in 1972 against Harold Stassen, beats him not as overwhelmingly as Nixon beat McGovern. And then in 1973, the Soviets think they can push the Yom Kippur war crisis farther than they could under Nixon, because Kennedy has already let them light off a nuclear bomb once, so what harm could threatening a little more do? Also, they're beginning to lose face in Vietnam. The 1973 crisis, unlike under Nixon, actually goes bad. Someone launches, someone counter-launches, the Israelis launch, and it turns into global thermonuclear war, which, as you know, Time Incorporated is against in 99 of 100 cases. That, that is number one on the whiteboard whenever that shows up yes. in the uh, time database meter. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. And so, although it means we are uh, robbed, Richard Nixon getting appointed director of the FBI as the first official act of President Robert F. Kennedy, we do, however, lose a glo global th thermonuclear war scenario. So I had to go back and basically lose his application there in August of 1937 thus letting him go off to California bar exam and eventual Congress and ignominy as uh, one of America's most uh, goofily evil presidents. Well, I, I think that uh, Time Incorporated is uh, once again happy that you uh, once again averted uh, global thermonuclear war, and I think uh, we can both be happy that we've successfully completed another podcast. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The Bundle of Holding. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Rid your house of pesky ghosts by hitting the donate button at canarobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter podcast, or Mesopotamian vampire cult by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.